Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre in London, based at Holy Trinity Brompton. Mike Lloyd and Jane Williams join me, Graham Tomlin, in talking about theology, life, God, and just about everything else. Well, hello and welcome to GodPod 31. I can't believe there are 31 GodPods on this website, but um, it's very good to uh, be with you again. And uh, today we have um, Mike. Yes, it's the usual suspects this today. It, it is indeed. Mike and Jane. Yes, the home team. Again, lots of good questions have come in from different parts of the world. And um, the first one we're going to look at today is um, one from someone called Delphia Simmons, who writes uh, a quite interesting question in. That uh, reads like this. Uh, is, if at all possible, would you please give your views on purgatory? Uh, I know that it is a tradition of the Catholic Church, but I'm starting to wonder if it has some elements of truth in it. And she says in brackets, I'm a Protestant. Close brackets. In case we hadn't guessed. <laughs> That's right. And then she says, love the show. So it's very good. Um, so yeah, there is our our question. Purgatory. Um, which reminds me of something. I think, it was, I think it was Abraham Lincoln or something like that once said that... Um, the marriage is neither heaven nor hell, it is simply purgatory, <laughs> which I thought was quite an interesting one, really. Yeah, but you don't get any years off, do you, for good behaviour or anything? Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should have asked his wife's view on the matter. She might no, have no, thought well, it was hell. But I think, you know, understanding what purgatory is, I think it kind of makes some sense, really, because you know, the idea of purgatory being a place where it, it changes you and it shapes you and, and, and so on, which I think marriage does. So why has it come to be, oh, that's real purgatory, why has it come to, to mean something so yeah, that's right. bad? What exactly. was its original historic Form, Graham. Yeah, that's right. Because you're right; it has become a sort of term of "oh, that's terrible." It's sort of absolute purgatory, you know. As if actually, as you were sort of saying, it's like it's like it, it was hellish, but mm. but actually, purgatory wasn't wasn't that at all. I guess it, historically, I mean, the, the the doctrine of purgatory has has quite sort of deep historical roots in Christian theology. It goes back um, to um, the sort of fourth century and, and perhaps even before that. Now, particularly Saint Augustine was a sort of key figure in in developing the the um, the idea of purgatory, and I suppose it comes from the uh, the, it, the the line of thought I think that leads to, to purgatory within Christian theology is that if if salvation is the process whereby which we are gradually purged of our sinfulness, that we are born into the world sort of flawed and tainted and and um, twisted by 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 sin, then certainly Augustine's theology held that the work of grace which um, came into human life through Christ and is applied to the individual through baptism and then through the kind of sacraments of the church and through um, the life of, of living with the Holy Spirit. Um, grace gradually, if you like, frees us from, the, from the, um, the effects of sin and that gradually over time, sin is purged from us. And uh, the salvation can be said to be complete when, if you like, that process is, is, is over, that process of gradual healing, that healing grace, and the work of healing grace is, is, is finished. Um, and so, in a, in a sense, and, and we kind of all know that the time of death in the life of any Christian, that process is not yet complete. And therefore, there has to be a sort of continuing, uh, continuing of that process of the purging of sin, uh, until the day finally comes when sin is completely purged from a person's life and personality and, and, and so on, and they are free to enter into, um, into heaven itself. 
and uh, into the full presence of God, because, of course, nothing can enter the presence of God which is at all sinful. And uh, so I suppose it's, it's a way of dealing with the question of, uh, you know, what about the fact that we, you know, when we die, we are still, there's still an element of, of, of sin within our within our natures. How is that dealt with? And then so the idea is that there is a sort of process of purgatory that, or purgation, if you like, that, that, that continues. Um, and there were various other sort of versions of the doctrine of purgatory, especially in the Middle Ages. There was the idea that the, uh, the, 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 um, the punishments for sin um, uh, are not yet complete by the time of, uh, of death, and that needed to continue to be sort of exercised, and that had to be worked through after death uh, was over. And I guess the, the difference being that in a, certainly within a sort of classic medieval understanding of purgatory, that before death, and since the question of whether you're going to heaven or hell is still open, um, if someone is in purgatory, if you like, there's only a, a doorway into heaven, there's not a doorway back into hell again. So, you know, your salvation is assured once you are in purgatory. Um, but there still has to be this process of change um, towards the day when when sin is entirely eradicated from a particular individual and they enter into heaven. So so what was it that the reformers so objected to about the doctrine of purgatory? <coughs> Why do, do we as Protestants on the whole not believe in purgatory? Well, I suppose Apart because... Apart from Mike, of course. <laughs> I suppose because Protestants tend to, tend, don't tend to see salvation as a process. Um, and certainly Luther's... Uh, Luther's theology very much opposed the idea that in some way our, that, that salvation is a process of change. So for him, it was almost that, that it wasn't that our righteousness needs to be sort of increased and the sort of sinful bit of us needs to get less and less and the righteous bit needs to go more and more so that you kind of start with 50% righteous, 50% sinful, and you get to the point when you're 100% righteous and 0% sinful. That He felt that scheme wasn't about salvation. That that's not, not the way salvation works at all. No, instead, we are saved not on the basis of our own righteousness, but on the basis of the righteousness of Christ, which is given to us as a gift, which is received by faith. Which we can never deserve. Exactly. Even, and which is, in a sense, given yeah. once and for all. Yeah. And therefore, if we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, actually our own sinfulness or righteousness is neither here nor there, because that's not what saves us. It is Christ's righteousness that saves us. And therefore, at the moment of, of death, he could envisage a kind of entry fully into the presence mm. of God. Mm. And And the... The business of kind of becoming more righteous or more, more holy or whatever is, is a process of sanctification rather than salvation. And it's just a matter yeah. of making us what sure. we already are yeah. in terms of, of what Christ has done for us. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. I mean, I, I have a slight problem with um, bits of the kind of traditional doctrine of purgatory. I, I think the instinct that we're not going to get good enough to be put into a perfect world without ruining it by the time we oh. die is, is correct I mean that's that's obviously has to be right there's something that needs to be done otherwise um, we, we when we get put into the new heavens and the new earth are going to make them back to being the old heavens and the old earth mm. um, but to say that we won't that that is, is a thing that takes time will take duration I think it's that's where the problem comes into it mm. Mm. Um, and then to start talking about you know a thousand years off purgatory or whatever um, doesn't entirely make sense once one's out of the current space-time mm. continuum that we're in. Mm. After all, um, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 15 in a verse that um, I've seen embroidered on some baby's wall, uh, in, which was rather nice saying, uh, 
we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. <laughs> um, <laughs> Anybody with a young baby might like to <coughs> have that right. up on the wall. Up on their wall. <laughs> yes. um, it says, you know, we should be changed in the twinkling of an eye, as yep. if yep. The, the, there isn't a kind of duration thing to it. And mm. if, if it is true that what Christ says to the thief on the cross, today he will be with him in paradise, mm. it looks as if you don't have to wait a long time before mm. one is worthy to be in the presence of God. Mm. It looks like that can be an immediate, immediate thing. In Augustine, um, it, the, 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 the idea of a sort of interim state is partly invented um, so that it shouldn't be unfair to people who had, like, like for example, small babies who die yep. before baptism. Yep. Um, so for Augustine, um, for forgiveness is, is entirely the work of Christ, but becomes effectual through the sacraments of the church. Oh. Mm. Um, and so he was really talking about a category of people who had no access to those sacraments, but mm. not really about mm. the rest of us, because Augustine, yeah, I think, sure. like Luther, yeah. didn't believe we could ever earn our own yeah. no, exactly. um, salvation right. or yeah. would ever get better if left to our own devices, um, which seems <laughs> yeah. to me perfectly true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although clearly, he, you know, he, that's right, he, he sees it's, it's the work of grace, it's not our work that, that, that does affects that yeah. process of change. Um, but, but you could see how... Augustine's theology of, of of this sort of healing grace that gradually makes us better and heals us from the effects of sin, allied to his this idea of a kind of intermediate state for unbaptized babies and that kind of thing, could grow into the kind of medieval doctrine of penance, mm. oh, yes, so pur purgatory, which came later on. You can see how that works. But then the thief on the cross didn't have access to the sacraments either um mm. and yes oh, well he had ac access to the living sacraments well that, that is the true dying, so, yeah. but but then mm. in that case why can't the, the person the, the child who dies yes. before yes. baptism also have access yeah. to the living sacrament it's interesting how the the doctrine has has shaped our landscape isn't it and if you think of the number of churches and that that were built in order to say prayers yeah. Uh, for the souls in purgatory mm, and, right. and, and yeah. chantries and Ox, Oxbridge chapels. Yeah, and, that's right, yes. Um, that, that it's extraordinary that that has so shaped our physical landscape but and is something that on the whole we hardly think about at all anymore. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Mm. Yeah, and, and I think it's, I think that's right, it's balancing the, the right instinct, I think, that is, mm. as, as, as Mike says, that, you know, that, that you know, even however far we progress in the Christian life in this way, in this life, whenever good enough to go straight into the presence of God on our on our, our own our own basis, our own merits, as it were. Um, but it's the time thing outside this space-time continuum that becomes a uh, a problem. Yeah, problematic, yeah. if not. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and which is where you where you get all the kind of calculations of thousands of years yeah. in purgatory, which then need to be sort of bought off by indulgences and all that kind of thing in the Middle Ages. Really, quite quite a problematic thing. Mm. Um, so anyway, well, that's um, just a little uh, counter around purgatory, which I'm sure is... Um, <laughs> Not dissimilar to Dante. Exactly, yeah, Dante did spend a rather longer time <laughs> dealing with purgatory than we did, but <laughs> Dante did it in a whole book. We did it in 10 minutes, so there you go. Um, so let's move on to uh, our next question, which is um, uh, an interesting one from, um, from, from John Stammers, who, um, is a, who's in North Wales. And he writes this uh, question where he says, I have a question about judging each other. I'm conscious of a very common tendency, particularly in evangelical and charismatic circles, to talk in terms of who is and who isn't saved or who is and who isn't a proper Christian. Um, 
and so on. And he says, this strikes me as being totally unbiblical, putting ourselves on God's throne to judge when we don't actually have a clue how God will judge other people, especially if they're very different from us. But since it's so common, I wonder if it, if it is ever right for us to characterize others in terms of who's in and who's out, in a mission context, pastoral context, or any other context, context. and if so, how should we do it? So should we ever make those kind of judgments about someone else, whether they are saved or not, whether they are a true Christian or not? Now, can we make such judgment, or is that um, out of order, because it's only God who knows? I, um, I think what the first question that comes to mind is, well, why would we need to know? Um, first question. Second question, how could you know? And I think hmm. people sometimes feel we need to know, because um, if we are seen as a community that tolerates what looks like sinful behavior, does it impair our mission um and i mean that that is part of uh, the big question that evangelicals have always faced you know if, if we are trying to be just utterly forgiving and accepting how can we also say to people um come to know jesus and change your life um it's because it sounds as though you might be saying come to know jesus and it won't really make any difference <laughs> the, the kind of mission to the sinless you mean well, <laughs> i know i you, you know what i mean that that if if it is true that having sin in our midst affects our mission, then there's nobody we can have mission to. Uh, nobody <laughs> who could have mission. Yes. Um, there's a sense in which yes, of course, it does compromise our mission. Um, but then the church is a collection of sinful people, um, and there's not much we can do about that except on a day by day basis of trying to get ourselves sanctified. I, I think the, the <coughs> part of the attitude that I find hard is, is that it is strange how other people's sins, one is always convinced other people's sins are more shocking than one's own. Yeah. And I think that kind of attitude, um, which is one that Jesus himself castigates, isn't it? Um, little flecks in other people's yeah. eyes and great logs in your own. <laughs> um is is a, an attitude that makes us a deeply unattractive and untruthful In fact, um, Jesus' community. teaching is the other way around. It actually ought to be that we ought to find our own sins much more horrendous and horrible Absolutely. than other people's because yeah. actually we, we know something of our own hearts yeah. that we don't know about others. I mean, I know, st I know things about that goes on in my heart that, that um, you know, but I don't know about other people's. Mm -hmm. So I know the, something of the depths of my own <laughs> sinfulness, which, which which is not apparent to me in other, in other people. So... So there ought to be that 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 other other, the other way around in that that mm. our own sins ought to appear more more um, large than other people's. But, but somehow they don't usually do. Yeah, that. exactly. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and I think one of the things about believing in a final judgment um, is that that is the judgment, and and we leave that to God, who is omniscient and knows the mm. secrets of people's hearts, and we don't, and therefore any other judgment that we make or have to make has to be at very best provisional upon that and we wait upon that judgment and jesus suggests that we're surprised surprises mm. in the process mm. some mm. people who didn't didn't realize that they'd accepted him who in fact had and and worryingly vice versa mm. Mm. it's i mean historically within evangelicalism it's been a, a really destructive facet of evangelical character to constantly ask who's in and who's out, who's sound and who's not. It has actually fractured evangelicalism. If one looks back over its history, for example, in the 20th century, the fracturing of evangelical groupings so that you get smaller and smaller groups identified in opposition to each other. Yes. Now, that really has affected our mission, yes. I think. Yes. Um, 
So one could argue that actually to be better at accepting each other um, would make us more effective. Are there any circumstances, though, where it might be the kind of thing where you have to make some sort of judgment on that? Though, Are there no circumstances at all where one might want to make that kind of distinction to decide whether someone is... If you're going to ordain somebody, for instance, it'd be kind of useful to have a pretty good idea that they believe. But even then, you're not not making a judgment about whether or not they're saved. I think that there may be occasions when you have to make a judgment about whether somebody's behaviour is destroying the community Hmm. um, that you're in and undermining the community. But but Hmm. I really still doubt if one would have the right to say, and therefore that that God agrees with my judgment on that person. That's true, but one is trying to... discern whether somebody has a, a real faith um, whether there's a, a genuine kind of life of faith going on there and, might, might and, and again it has to be provisional mm. we don't know um, and might there not be times when one might want to actually challenge someone and, and it would depend on how, how you took a view on that as to whether you might say well actually you know ha- have you actually given your life to Christ have you, you know is is you know is this something that is you know, central to to your to your life or, or not, and I suppose you might treat people slightly differently as to whether you felt actually they yes they were uh, a believing Christian or, or someone who who hadn't grasped that at all. Um, I don't know. Absolutely, that that's no, that's absolutely a fair question to ask people, isn't it? Provided you then really listen to their answer. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the time, these kind of judgments can be made without bothering to ask people. You make a, a superficial judgment on your assumptions about what's mm. going on. Mm. And actually, yes. people can be living lives that um, that would not be the life that you would choose to live, but which they believe to be um, as fully expressive of their love of Christ as it as it can be. And then, I mean, the, the, this is, the problem is that people disagree, don't they, about um, about what is a life fully expressive of of Christ, because we none of them, mm. none of us live those yeah. perfect kind of lives. And that's where I think the question is quite wise in saying sometimes uh, we, we are more likely to dismiss somebody who's different from us mm. than those who are like us. Um, and I think that's a wise observation. Mm. So, I mean, I don't know how you steer the course between simply woolily saying we will <coughs> accept everybody and never challenge anybody, um, which must be bad because how will we grow if we don't challenge each other? Mm. Mm. Um, on uh, on the one hand, and on the other hand, simply being judgmental for its own sake, mm. which which I think mm. the question is right, has become a characteristic of certain kinds of evangelicalism mm. in a very destructive kind of way. I think it's um, I think it's true. I mean, John Calvin's approach to this was again surprisingly for John Calvin because he's often th- he's thought of as a very exclusive type of Christian. But but it was it's basically all you can go on is people's profession. Mm. In other words, what they say. We don't have access to each other's hearts. Mm. Only God has that. Mm. And therefore, you have to judge upon what people say about their profession of faith. And if someone claims to be Christian, you treat them as such, uh, unless you have very, very good reason for thinking that that might not 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 be true. And uh, so, it's a kind of a generosity of spirit that that is prepared to 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 um, treat others as Christian as they profess to be so, and as they're baptized and, and so on. Whereas, rather than the, the the kind of the other approach, which is to be pretty suspicious of everybody, mm. um, and unless they can give positive, you know. Um, proof of this, that, or the other, that then, then we won't actually we'll always have sort of bear this suspicion as to whether they really are um, one of the elect or not. Well, as a good example of that being, I remember Desmond Tutu saying, um, somebody asked him about de Klerk uh, and whether he thought he was a Christian. 
Um, and Tusu just said, well, he says he is, so I, I accept him mm. as a brother. Mm. Mm. Um, and that, I think, is the right default position. Really. Yeah. And That's must right. have been particularly galling for de Klerk, wasn't it? <laughs> 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 to be yeah. accepted yeah. as a brother yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> by Desmond Tutu. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. yeah. <laughs> There's that thing that comes in the pastoral epistles, which simply says, you know, God knows those who are his. Um, and the sense in which those kind of secrets are only in, uh, in, in the heart of God. And in some ways, it's a bit of a relief to have to feel that I don't have to make those judgments. Mm-hmm. I don't have to try and decide whether someone is a real Christian saved or, or not. I can leave that uh, to God. I simply have to treat people um, on the profession that they, that, they, that they make. Good. Okay. Um, we uh, ought to move on to our last question, uh, which is a question about... Um, about uh, the Bible. Now, this is um, one that comes from Nigel Freestone. And uh, he's picking up on, on a question we asked, uh, we did a little bit earlier on in Godpod number 23, which was about can we trust the Bible? And I think at that time, I think it was the one we did with Amy or Ewing, actually. And, and, and in that one, the, 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 the way the answer went was along the lines of, you know, what about the God of the Old Testament? Can we believe the God of the Old Testament is good? Uh, and all of that. But I mean, Nigel's very. Um, Valid question as well. It, we didn't really answer the question. There's <laughs> <laughs> <Which>, a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> do we ever? Um, but his point is that um, the uh, the question of can we trust the Bible is also about you know how do we know it's reliable? So when we read the Gospels and we read the Old Testament, can we know that it actually is telling a? You know, is this true? And in what sense is it true? And, and all of that. So it's not just a question of you know, how do we view the character of the Old Testament God. It's also about the reliability of the scriptures and how we know that to be the case. So um, what do you think? Well, there are two ways you can answer that, really, aren't there? One is to go through the documents and the texts and the historical accuracy of them, and, and that would take quite a long time. <laughs> um, it's very important, important work. Mm. But then it would be different for different books, different bits of the Bible. Um, one would just have to do a kind of careful apologetic task of showing that they are reliable. Mm-hmm. And the other way of doing it, I suppose, uh, and this is the way I kind of, in some ways, prefer, um, it's certainly shorter for something like this, is to say, in the end, it's, it's an issue about the character of God. In the end... Would he go to the if he wants to reveal himself to us so much so that he's prepared to become human and live a human life and live out the divine life in human form? Um, then not then to give us access to what happened when he did a kind of basically reliable mm. access mm. to mm. the sort of things that Jesus said did. Um, how he interacted with human beings, what he did mm. in the presence of pain, what he did in the presence of uh, other people and mm. um, in all their different kind of human activities mm. um, would be to be self-defeating. Mm. It would mm. mean he'd only revealed himself to a particular group of people who lived in first century Palestine mm. uh, for the 30 years or so that he was alive. Um, if, if there's a God out there who wants to reveal himself... It would be very odd to do the hard bit, mm. becoming incarnate, living a human life, dying, rising again, and then not give us any mm. reliable or accurate mm. um, access to what happened when he did. And that matters if it's a God who reveals himself actually in history, and if it's a God who just reveals himself in yes. some sort of rather sort of vague ethereal way, which is not historically rooted, then it probably wouldn't matter that much if yes. we didn't have any access to the historical events. But if the incarnation actually is you know, God intersecting human time and history... And, and real 
real life as, as we live it, then in a sense it matters that we have access to the actual history itself. It's not a sort of matter of inconsequence. And the great um, 20th century Swiss theologian Karl Barth said that the Bible infallibly does what God wants it to do, which is to bring you into relationship with God in his self-revelation in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And I've always rather liked that because I, don't, I think the danger is when people want to rely on the Bible to be God um, uh, and, uh, and God reveals himself in Jesus Christ and the Bible bears witness to that self-revelation. But the Bible is not the thing that we primarily rely upon. We rely upon God in Jesus Christ mm, through his Holy mm, Spirit. Mm. Um, but I think people also need to know that the Bible is actually far more historically accurate than people often give it credit for. We're, we're trying to compare it um, with a modern um, historian's work in a way that's completely unfair. But if you look at it in the context of, the, of, of books of that kind of, of parallel age, it's extraordinarily mm. reliable. Mm. And people need to know that that kind of historical and archaeological work has been done mm. on this book in the way it's been un- done on no other mm. historical document mm. that exists. Um, mm. and, and, and it really can be um, largely mm. trusted uh, in its detail as well as in bringing us into yes. relationship I'm with God. <laughs> I was struck by the... Um, Approach taken taken to this by um, that kind of New, New Testament scholar called Ken Bailey, who uh, um, worked in the Middle East for many many years and did a lot of work with um, with uh, sort of Bedouin tribes and, and um, people who lived a, a way of life in in the Middle East, which is not that different from sort of village life in Palestine in the first century. In other words, that things had not you know that, that these are people who had not been urbanized, not been brought into the modern world in many ways, but some of the kind of traditions of, of, of nomadic um, sort of rural life in Palestine actually you know, still retained a lot of the patterns since that time. And one of the conclusions he came to was there was a, that the whole thing of oral tradition, the way in which stories were transmitted from generation to generation, there was, an, again, there was extraordinarily tight uh, means of control for that. So that you know, it wasn't like you know, for us. You know, we tell a story, and, and we don't have a very strong oral tradition. So, you know, you My get stories the, get more and more elaborated. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you get the Chinese whispers thing, where actually, you know, twenty generations down the line, the story's completely different from the way it was in the beginning. But actually, within these cultures, there was a very, very tight control of oral traditions. So that you know, if you told a story, and the village elders were sitting around, and if you told it wrong, if, or if you got the main bits of the story wrong. They would stand up and say, hang on, you, you got that wrong. You could change a little bit of the detail around it, but actually the main bits, the characters, the punchline, the, the main thrust of the story had to be told exactly right from generation to generation. And that was very tightly controlled. Now, I think that reflects actually what you have in the Gospels, because when you look at the Gospel stories, you see across from, and you compare it from one Gospel to another, you get you know a few of the details around the edge are a little bit different, but actually the main thrust of each story remains pretty much the same, which actually reflects this this kind of very tightly controlled system of oral tradition. And if we're talking about these stories being written down within several decades of the time when they actually happen, now for us that sounds quite a long time because we don't have a strong oral tradition. But at that time, that's a very short time, which actually gives us quite a strong reason for believing these stories are are actually extraordinarily accurate in the way that they were they were they were written down. If not, you know, if and, and even the fact that there are little changes and tiny bits of the details that are different, that doesn't change the fact that 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 the essence of these stories are pretty pretty much reliably as they were. And even even the little differences in in the parables and that sort of thing could be due to the fact that Jesus 
told the same story yeah. differently on different sure. occasions anyway. It may right. yes. not be People that, do in their sermons, it has been known, hasn't exactly. it? Exactly, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Extraordinarily so. Yeah. Yes. And, and the, the same will be true for a lot of Old Testament yeah. history and narrative as well, the same kind of sort of oral tradition, which, again, we find very difficult to understand because we don't have it in our in our kind of written culture because we write things down. That's the way we we kind of tell sto- tell stories and or we film them and so on. We don't have this 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 extraordinary memory that people had in those times. Well, no, that's it's right. In the fourth century, it, it used to be a requirement for ordination that you knew the psalms off by heart, all yeah. 150 of them. Well, not, <laughs> I suspect, many people mm. today yeah, do. That's right. Yeah. It, it's it's worth saying that that's one of the reasons why we don't go on adding to scripture, to the canon mm. of scriptures, mm. particularly um, with regard to the New Testament. One of the criteria was that it should be um, either directly an eyewitness mm. or somebody who was in direct touch with an eyewitness. Yeah, sure. So um, mm. so scripture is closed after those that kind of eyewit- eyewitness yeah. testimony is no longer available. And if anybody so, wants, sorry. Yes, you can trust the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> you want to follow up the eyewitness thing, um, Richard Borkham's latest book on yeah. Jesus and the eyewitnesses is stunning work on mm. the importance of eyewitness and how much it lies behind yeah. um, the New Testament. Account. And again, a, a very strong scholarly case for saying actually this this does look like the the work of eyewitnesses. Mm. This is yes. this is a you know th- there's a <coughs> very strong reason for believing this. And, and the usual kind of argument that oh well these are biased people because they've got an axe grind they've got you know trying to push a particular story. He says mm. well actually um, in in those days being a participant in something. Uh, gave you credibility as a witness rather than yeah. suspicion as a That's witness. Right. Uh, and and he shows that memory mm. um, works best when it's something that you're p- be part of and that you've been a contributor towards. Yeah. Then you actually memorize yeah. things much better and remember them much more accurately. Yeah. And that book's called Richard Borkham, which is B-A-U-C-K-H-A-M, and, and Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And the eye- Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, yeah. yes. Oh, just the other point to make as we draw this one to a, a close. I mean, I always think of the end of John 20, which... Um, because I think when, when thinking about the Bible, you, and arguments about the, the the kind of historical reliability of it, uh, we can kind of get those arguments wrong. I think almost as if I think it's the point you were making, Jane. That, that it's almost as if the, the but historical you'll just make accuracy, it so much better. No, no, at all. <laughs> <laughs> just to sort of add to it, but um, almost as if the historical reliability of the Bible becomes the main thing itself, and that's the point of it. We have to guard that in every single possible sort of detail, which I think, is, as Mike was saying, you just can't do, because you can't go through every single tiny detail to prove that it was exactly as it, as it was. In some ways, it's an, it's an article of faith. That, But it strikes me that that's slightly missing the point about the Bible, because the Bible is not primarily there to give us documentary evidence of the nature of exactly what Jesus did. Um, I mean, the, the point of the Bible, I think, is it's summed up in these these verses at the end of John John 20, where you know, John says, you know, Jesus did these many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why the, these stories are written down, not just to give us information about Jesus, but actually to enable us to believe in him and to have life through him. That, that's true, but that, I wouldn't want to push that dichotomy too far, because... Uh, what are you having faith in if yeah, these sure. are not giving you some fairly accurate information about what Jesus yeah. did, what yep. he said, what he taught, what he stood for, how he died? Yeah, I think you need that. But I suppose my point is that um, that actually too much of a focus on the historical accuracy just gives a sense that, well, as long as it's historically accurate, that's kind of all we somehow need. It's it's a matter of giving us information. Where I think it goes beyond giving us information. Mm-hmm. This is information in order to enable us to believe in him. So you can't have a relationship with historical 
accuracy. Yeah, but we need to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. About whom you know some historically accurate things. Exactly. I think we got there in the end. One other thing I'd like to say is is on the manuscript thing, because obviously the accuracy of manuscripts is is an uh, important element in our access to these documents and what lies the person who lies beyond them. And, um, of course, we have an interesting test of that with the Dead Sea Scrolls um, Old Testament manuscripts, uh, which gave us manuscripts nearly 900 years older than we previously had. And they're almost exactly the same mm. as the manuscripts mm. we had. There were tiny yep. little bits where you know, they differ and where that's quite useful that we have another another reading and another manuscript tradition. But there's no significant difference between... Mm. In, in, Over a thousand-year period. A thousand-year yes. period of, of manuscript copying. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Well, I think we've come to the end of Godpod 31. Um, Jane can go home to her nice warm house now rather than sitting Thank in this you. cold room. <laughs> <laughs> but we, I think we warmed up with our discussion, haven't we, really? Actually, I do feel much warmer. I yes, think it's the hot air. There's, the <laughs> there's nothing like theology to stir one's... Absolutely. This is our recommendation if you're feeling cold today. So, um, okay, well, that was good for 31. Thank you, Mike and Jane. Oh, yes, it is a pleasure. <laughs> yeah, good. It's yes, stuck in the throat, though. <laughs> <slightly. laughs> sure can't really bring yourself to say it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, until next time, goodbye from all of us. Bye. Bye. That was Godpod, a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye.